welcome home. No matter which one of our campuses that you're joining us from, we want to thank you for being here. My name is Adam Congdon. I'm the counseling pastor here at Northridge Church, and I get to walk alongside those in our church that are hurting and need some help being pointed to Christ in the midst of their circumstances. And so I connect with and lead our incredible team of counseling staff and volunteers that enable us to impact so many more people than I could on my own. And we're gonna talk about our team and what it might look like to join that team if you're interested on the podcast this week. So be sure you check that out if that interests you. Um, but I also get to coach about a dozen of our community groups. And our community group leaders are my heroes. Now, they're on the front lines of ministry, leading and caring for those in their group in ways that our staff would never be able to have the capacity for. So a sincere thank you to each and every one of our community group leaders. This is my incredible family. Uh, my wife, Jennifer, and I, we've been married for 18 years, and it is an incredible blessing to be married to my best friend. Uh, that's our son, Isaac, there in the back, our daughter, Addison. Uh, Josh is down front there in the center, and I am holding our youngest, Lexi, who just turned three on Monday. Uh, but you can follow along today uh, in the app, in the message notes, uh, in your own copy of God's Word as well. But I want to start by looking at a verse that we've already talked about in this series. It's James 1-2. And you can go ahead and navigate there now. But Nate Miller covered this back in the first week of this series, When Life Hits Hard. And he also shared that that passage was the same passage that he preached his first sermon on 22 years ago, right? And that's ironic because it's also the first, my first sermon was on the same passage. It's, it's today, actually. It's, it's right now. Um, so hopefully my first sermon goes a little better than he claims that his first one did all those years ago. Otherwise, we're going to have a common experience of suffering to try to find joy in together. Um, but let's go ahead and read this verse together again. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Considering trials and suffering joy, it seems crazy. It's completely counterintuitive and for sure countercultural, but that's what I want us to wrestle with today. You see, in the beginning of a discussion about suffering, we're often not ready to hear this. Many of us can't even see how it's possible. So we intentionally addressed it briefly, and we knew we'd come back and take a deeper look at it here as we wrap up the series today. Before we could learn and embrace how to find joy in suffering, we needed to cover a lot of ground first. So if you were skeptical of what this verse is commanding us to do, we get it. Um, here's what we've covered so far in the series. Week one, Nate shared that God has a purpose for our suffering. Trials are the divine chisel of God, he said. And I loved his illustration of Michelangelo and the quote he shared about a block of stone before he begins sculpting. The finished product is already there. He's just taking away what ought not to be there. We have to know and embrace to trust that what God is doing and allowing in our lives is actually what's best for us in the larger picture of eternity. And then in week two, Daniel encouraged us to be like bison, not running from our suffering, exhausting ourselves and staying in the storm longer, but instead facing it head on. He encouraged us to engage with God by speaking the language of lament in prayer. 
We can't fake it with God. He knows our hearts, and when we're hurting, he wants us to come to him and talk with him about it. And he does that because he knows that the sooner we do it, the more it will help us to get to the place where we can trust him. And then last week, Nate encouraged us to grow in our ability to walk alongside others in their suffering. We don't have to fix the problems that they're facing. Most of the time, we can't do that anyways. But we need to comfort them with the comfort that we've been given by Christ in our own suffering. We are to walk with them, not walk them through it. And when we do that, it's one of the clearest ways that God displays the purpose of suffering in our lives. It helps us to take our eyes off of our own suffering and put the needs of others first. And when we do that, we are becoming more like Christ. And those three pieces are crucial to our search for joy in suffering. It's why we didn't expect you to embrace it in week one. Because if we aren't remembering God's ultimate purpose for our lives, engaging with him in our suffering, and walking alongside others in their suffering, then joy will be elusive to us. But a word of caution, though, on our journey for joy. We need to be careful to not minimize suffering in the lives of others or even in our own lives as we walk through it. Suffering is real, and suffering is hard. But there's a tough tension between acknowledging the reality and weight of suffering and devaluing joy. And we need to think and act carefully to get this right. In order to do that, we have to realize that suffering and joy can be experienced simultaneously. In fact, we don't need to look any further than the great theologians at Disney to see this on display. (laughs) So if you've seen the movie Inside Out, you know what I'm talking about, but Riley is an 11-year-old girl whose family is moving from Minnesota to San Francisco. And so this movie gives us an inside look at the emotions that are at play in her head and I believe are an extension of her heart. Joy, anger, disgust, fear, and sadness take turns being at the controls of Riley's brain throughout this movie. And I just wanted to show you a few clips of Joy so you could get to know her better. All right, everyone, fresh start. We are going to have a good day, which will turn into a good week, which will turn into a good year, which turns into a good life. There's always a way to turn things around, to find the fun. Oh, come on, it could be worse. Yeah, Joy, we could be lying on the dirty floor in a bag. That last one, by the way, that's one of the worst things that you can say to comfort a sufferer. So please resist this temptation. But these are the things that we think of when we think of joy, right? It's endlessly positive. And is that such a bad thing? But as joy is introducing us to the other emotions, check out how she introduces sadness. And you've met sadness. She, well, she. I'm not actually sure what she does. And I've checked, there's no place for her to go. So she's good, we're good, it's all great. We think we have no use for sadness. We'd like to get rid of it. It it just slows us down. But as this movie progresses, Joy realizes the purpose that sadness serves as the two of them remember one of the moments of Riley's life very differently. Check this out. Oh, 
it's that time in the twisty tree, remember? The hockey team showed up and mom and dad were there cheering. Look at her, having fun and laughing. Ah, oh, I'd love this one. Hmm, I love that one too. Suffering is often a doorway to joy. But while I appreciate that Disney helped us and the children in our lives realize this in a fun and entertaining way, I'm thankful that the Bible speaks to it as well so we can be confident that it's true. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So Paul has experienced this, and we're going to look at the book of Philippians uh, to see how he gets there, but before we do that, I'd love to actually consider together what joy actually is. So the dictionary says that joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. And that sounds right, doesn't it? When things are good, we have joy. But I think that those of us that claim to be Christ followers should think about it differently, though. Pastor and author Rick Warren gives us this definition. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. So it seems that if we let the gospel inform our definition of joy, that joy is a choice. And in week one, Nate talked about it as uh, computing or considering, that it's a, vo a choice that we should take into account who God is and what he's done for us. That should change how we view our circumstances. But what does the Bible say about joy? Galatians 5 says this, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we see that joy is fruit of the Spirit, and that means that we can't produce it on our own. Jesus makes this clear when he says in John 15, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. And what does it mean to remain in Jesus? Well, I like how the ESV translates it. They use the term abide in me. 
And this means we need to wait patiently or endure with Christ while he brings that fruit to bear in our lives. But we can't do that if we're not spending time with him. Our time with him gives us an opportunity to connect with him. We get to know him more each day by reading the Bible and learning what he wants us to know about him and the story of redemption that he's writing in our world and in each of us. So we know that our joy doesn't depend on us. It comes from God. But we also need to realize that joy doesn't always look like a huge smile or a happy-go-lucky attitude. Sometimes joy is a wrestling with the brokenness of this sin-stained world that results in trusting God in the middle of our pain. We have to understand this as a viable expression of joy. Sometimes we need to give ourselves and others the space to be sad and joyful and not rush them or ourselves to the happy version of joy that we may be more comfortable with. When we rush healing, we can unintentionally make light of the depths of pain and suffering and cheapen the power of the cross and all that it accomplishes for us. God doesn't make light of the suffering in our lives and neither should we. So we can't settle for happiness. We need to pursue joy that only comes from the Spirit. And in the book of Philippians, Paul gives us an example of what this looks like. He's writing a letter to the church in Philippi that he helped plant. They were facing lots of opposition, and he wanted to encourage them by sharing his own response of joy to the hardship that he faced. And what was his hardship? Well, he was thrown in prison for sharing the gospel. And so we're going to fly through this account. So I'd encourage you to go back this week, read all four of those chapters to get the full picture. But let's go ahead and start in chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So more week one review here, right? His suffering has a purpose. It's advancing the gospel. And because he's suffering well, others are growing in their faith. And so Paul's version of suffering here is being in chains for Christ. And that's probably something that none of us have experienced but the principles definitely still apply to our suffering. Let's go ahead and jump to verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. When Paul says deliverance, is he talking about his chains, his temporary circumstances, or is he talking about eternal deliverance, the process of sanctification, being made more like Jesus and being delivered from his sin? Well, the ESV Study Bible believes that it could be either, and they actually suggest that they think Paul is intentionally vague here because he knows that it could be one or the other or both. And so we need to be open to both possibilities as well. It is right for us to pray for relief from suffering, but we also need to pray for heart transformation from the suffering that remains. And this is where our suffering can often turn to sin. When we struggle to see the purpose in it, we are tempted to get frustrated. And I don't know about you, but when I'm frustrated, I am rarely righteous. 
The suffering that God allows in our lives is meant to make us more like him, but often before it does that, it shows us our need to be transformed. Let's read verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, whatever happens, live worthy of the gospel. There is no free pass for sin because of suffering. And this doesn't mean that we aren't shown grace by God when we fall short or that we shouldn't show grace to others when they fall short, but suffering doesn't justify our sin. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. This is one of those gifts we wish we could give back, right? But if you have faith in Christ, you have to know that suffering is a required course. And Paul takes this idea further a couple chapters later. Jump with me to chapter three, verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Our suffering connects us to Christ. It's how we grow to know him more and how he grows us in it. We begin to look more like him. The power of the resurrection here that Paul mentions, Ephesians 1 talks about it as the same power that rose Jesus from the grave and it's alive in each one of us through the spirit and that power is what changes us and can give us joy in the face of suffering. All right, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. None of us have arrived. We are to press on because there is more work to be done in us. We're called to forget what's behind and strain ahead towards our eternal solution in Christ. Our pain and suffering don't define us and we can't get stuck in it. We might be stuck with it, but we can't be stuck in it. Assessing our past can be helpful at times to understand the circumstances of how we got to where we are and how we may have been able to respond differently, but we can't get stuck there. We need to keep looking forward to becoming more like Christ and moving forward in that goal by the power of the Spirit. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And I love Paul's approach here. He says, if you're mature in Christ, you should think like this. Maturity means you realize you've got a long way to go and you're focused on that maturing. So when it's prayer time in community group, mature believers, please reconsider saying, I don't have a prayer request this week. When that is our heart posture, we are forfeiting an active growing faith. We're choosing a season of stagnancy. So the best way to be prepared for that moment is to be thinking about and praying all week long for where you need to grow more like Christ every day. And then you just pick which one of those requests you want your group to join you in that week. But then Paul tells us this, if you don't think like this, 
I'm confident God will clear it up for you. Did you catch that? God, not him. He's, he doesn't view himself as the only source for conviction and correction. And then he finishes by saying, let each of us live up to what God has given us so far. We have to realize that each of us are on different sanctification schedules. So when God reveals your sin, depend on him to overcome it and engage with his process. But if he hasn't revealed the sin of others to them yet, be patient. He will at just the right time. And like he does with you, he will empower them to overcome it. Now, sometimes he may ask you to lovingly confront them in their sin, but usually he's more interested in you growing more like Christ as you respond lovingly to their sin. Let's jump to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. If you are struggling with your health today, or maybe you can't remember a day when you didn't, and that could be your physical, spiritual, mental, or emotional health, take heart, perfection, is coming. One of my favorite teachers, David Pollison, says it this way, someday you will be strong and healthy forever. And that future promise is so encouraging, but it can easily get lost in our present realities. And so in your notes are a few references for you to check out on your own this week uh, to see how Paul encourages us to keep our suffering in the proper perspective. But let's go ahead and jump to chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so rejoice just means to show great joy. And Paul tells us to do it always. And then as if we've forgotten already, he tells us again emphatically, rejoice. And this indicates how important it is that we learn to find joy in suffering. Let's keep going. Verse five, let your gentleness be evident to all. Does it seem like he just went off on a tangent there? Or, or is it maybe that Paul knows that we're all tempted to be harsh and hardened in the midst of our suffering? And he's encouraging us to fight that and be different because of Christ. And then he gives us the key, the, the where, the why, the how of finding joy in our suffering. The Lord is near. And we can't forget this. David Paulson notices What is so remarkable in how the Bible approaches people in suffering, fully cognizant that they feel he's far away, is over and over and over again. It says he's near. Tara Lee Cobble is an incredible teacher. She has an amazing Bible reading plan called The Bible Recap, and it has a podcast that goes along with each day's recording. And so I went through that a couple years ago and absolutely loved it. But she ends each recording by saying this of Jesus, he's where the joy is. And that's it. That's where we find joy in Christ But Christ knows that we'll struggle to embrace this. So he has Paul get practical with us, just so we know what it looks like. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that, that do not be anxious there, that's not a harsh reprimand. It's a loving encouragement and invitation to come to God in prayer. And when we do that, the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, or maybe we'd say it like this these days, it's above our pay grade, it's out of our league, it's beyond us, it's mind-blowing. That peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that's when we can honestly sing, I've still got joy in chaos, peace that makes no sense. Verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And we need to think about, to dwell on, to choose to focus on the good. And that doesn't mean we can't see and acknowledge the sin and suffering around us, but we don't focus on that. We take that to God and lament and trust him to restore it in his timing. But let's pull the whole series together now. To find joy in suffering, we have to remember the purpose of suffering. Run to our refuge and lament and come alongside others that are suffering. And when we do that, God reveals he's in control. He loves us. He's changing us. He reveals himself. We have to realize that he's where the joy is. And that's when we're able to find joy in suffering. But suffering isn't something that Christ just asked us to do. Suffering is something he knows all too well. He's the only sufferer this world has ever seen that wasn't also a sinner. And Hebrews tells us to look to him in our suffering. Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You with him forever. That joy that he knew was coming is why he endured the cross. Remembering that gives us strength and endurance in our suffering. So we want to consider him together right now through communion. And communion is another way that followers of Christ are connected to him. It's how we remember what he did for us on the cross. But the Bible says that communion is something that we need to take seriously and not do in an unworthy manner. And what would that look like? Well, if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet by asking him to forgive you of your sins and making him the leader of your life, we're so glad you're here with us wrestling with this topic, but you shouldn't take communion today. Or maybe you have done that, but you know there's an area of your life that you aren't following Christ. You know what you should do, but you're not even trying. You don't even want to do the right thing. We're glad you're here too, but you shouldn't participate in communion either. But the incredible thing is that if either of those two things were true of you when you walked in here today, they don't have to be true of you when you walk out. You can pray and ask God right now to change your heart. And if you do that, then you should participate in communion with us. We'd love to have you join us. So right now, our bands are going to come, and they're going to sing the song, Son of Suffering. And they're going to stop and instruct us so we can drink the juice and eat the bread together. But as they sing, 
If you need to pray and ask God to change your heart and prepare you for this moment, please do that. But I'd love for all of us to listen as the band sings about Jesus. He knows what it's like to suffer. He did it for you. Let's remember what he's done for us and let's remember that he's where the joy is.